Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, during last night's unconventional Democratic National Convention, Joe Biden accepted his party's nomination for president. Here and now, I give you my word. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. We'll recap the convention's highs and lows and historic moments, including the VP nomination of California Senator Kamala Harris and Governor Gavin Newsom's last-minute convention video on climate change as wildfires rage. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Governor Gavin Newsom revised his role at the Democratic National Convention last minute due to the state's wildfires by making a brief cell phone video appearance from a forest near a Watsonville area evacuation center. The change was just one of many convention changes Democrats were forced to make to deal with the dangers posed by the pandemic. In this hour, we'll recap the unconventional convention and hear what moments stood out most to you. But first, We focus on Newsom and his administration's response to the state's wildfires. Joining me is Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and co-host of Political Breakdown. Hi, Scott. Hi, Mina. Also with us, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED, co-host also of KQED's Political Breakdown podcast and program at 6.30s on Thursday. Hi, Marisa. Hey, Mina. Good to be here. So I want to start by playing some of Newsom's cell phone message to the DNC last night. Let's hear it now. The hots are getting hotter. The dries are getting drier. Climate change is real. If you are in denial about climate change, come to California. 11,000 dry lightning strikes. We had over a 72-hour period leading to this unprecedented challenge with these wildfires. This is an extraordinary moment in our history. Mother Nature has now joined this conversation around climate change. And so we too need to advance that conversation anew. Uh, Just today, the President of the United States uh, threatened the state of California, 40 million Americans that happen to live here in the state of California uh, to defund our efforts on wildfire suppression uh, because he said we hadn't raked enough leaves. You can't make that up. And again, that was Governor Newsom's address to the Democratic National Convention. And Marisa, I will start with you. I mean, what are your what is your reaction to both this decision to rejigger his speaking slot and the substance of what he was saying? Well, I mean, I think it makes sense, right? California's on fire. We have had just an unbelievably tough week on top of COVID. I mean, even before the fire started, we had these rolling blackouts because of the heat wave that was really, you know, threatening a lot of people um, from a health perspective as well. Triple digits, really record-breaking heat. And then, you know, these wildfires. And, you know, if you're not being impacted by those people are, there's smoke. I mean, I can smell it talking to you right now um, from my garage in San Francisco. So I think that, you know, Newsom, it made sense that he wanted to kind of rethink his message, which he had recorded on Sunday before a lot of this happened. I think politically, it's really um, a a new moment because Newsom has been so incredibly careful this entire year not to anger the president, essentially. I mean, he has really seen um, the federal government as, as a necessary partner. And even when other states, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, for example, from Michigan, really went after Trump over his response to COVID, Newsom's been very measured. Um, and this was, you know, not very measured. Um, and But, you know, I think a lot of people here, even if they support the president, might um, agree with that statement, which you can't make this up. I mean, he literally is saying, I mean, what he said was maybe we're just going to have to make them pay for it because they don't listen to us. We say you got to get rid of the leaves. And Newsom pointed out in that video, you know, that 
essentially the federal government owns the vast majority of uh, federal land or of, of forest land, especially compared to the state and, and, and then also private owners and local governments. And so I just think that this was probably a moment where Newsom felt like uh, he couldn't be quite any longer. And it would have been strange not to kind of push back, given that this is the DNC week. And a lot of what the Democrats are doing is trying to make the case against Trump. But Scott, were you surprised that he made this decision to give up what was essentially a, a pretty prime spot on the DNC, you know, schedule last night, as well as to take that hit at Trump? Yeah, this was not the convention that Gavin Newsom was hoping for a few uh, months ago. I mean, he did have a prime speaking spot last night, which he had to give up. Uh, he also was, I think, assumed to be the sort of the chair of the convention delegation. That got taken away from him by Bernie Sanders supporters. You know, Sanders won the state and they man managed to install three co-chairs, including Ro Khanna, who co-chaired Sanders' campaign. But, you know, politically, I think it would have looked so politically tone deaf for him to do what he was originally going to do, and I was told it was going to be some kind of lighthearted banter with Senator Cory Booker. I mean, that just would have, you know, really uh, not gone over well. So while he, uh, you know, I'm sure regretted not having that primetime spot and airing really before the convention. I mean, I don't think very many people nationally were watching at 557 last night, um, you know, but it was the right thing to do. It was uh, the right message. And as Marisa said, look, you, you know, he, he had been so careful in dealing with President Trump that he was starting to pop up in some of their commercials for Donald Trump. Uh, and so I think the last thing he wants is to be a part of the campaign going into November uh, as someone who appears to be supporting uh, the Republican president for re-election. And so far, Marisa, it sounds like the federal government is coming through. At least Newsom's office said Tuesday that it had secured grants from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to help the state fight the LNU lightning complex fire, the one that's burning near me. <laughs> and, uh, and it sounds like there's some more federal infusion, some more federal help yeah. coming in. Yeah, so the governor's uh, uh, office announced just about an hour ago that FEMA has um, secured another grant, um, this one for that terrible fire down near Santa Cruz, San Mateo. Um, and so it, it sounds like they have really gotten what they've asked for. And I mean, this is not unusual. Think back to pre-COVID when Newsom wasn't as interested in being friendly with Trump and, and trying to kind of win him over. Um, we saw this happen in 2018 with the campfire. Trump made similar threats. Uh, FEMA has always come through. I think the bigger question has been both around fires and COVID is broader sort of federal response, Congress acting or rather not acting, you know, appropriating more money. Um, but we haven't, I, I don't think I can think of any situation where we've actually been uh, denied federal disaster assistance over the past four years where other states might have gotten it. And I mean, let's just pause for a moment to realize what we're all facing and what Newsom's administration has to address. I mean, we have hundreds of thousands of acres on fire in the state from lightning storms during this terrible heat wave and tens of thousands of Californians have been evacuated. And so you're talking about state resources that are necessary at a time when they were already depleted by the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, Scott Schaefer, do you think he's doing a good job? Do you think he's up to this <laughs> task? You know, it, it is really, it is very tough. And it's especially difficult when you don't have clear, consistent federal leadership. And I think all, every governor, whether they say it publicly or not, uh, feel that there could have been and should have been and needs to be stronger leadership from the president and uh, the administration. And, uh, you know, that was a big message from Joe Biden last night, I think. But yeah, I mean, this, all of these, there were, there's always money in the budget for emergencies and for catastrophes and earthquakes and fires. But, you know, there, there's only so much personnel and equipment to go around. And especially in the Santa Cruz Mountains, where Cal Fire is really feeling overwhelmed right now, they're not really used to fighting fires there. There hasn't been one there in a long time. There's a lot of dry vegetation, a lot of fuel. Um, you know, and there were, you know, there are many personnel assigned to that fire, but it's not enough. I mean, it's barely, if at all, contained. And so it's a really dangerous situation, not just for the firefighters, but also obviously the people who, who live near there, the businesses and so on. And all you can really do in addition to throwing everything you've got at it is hope to catch a break, you know, with the wind, the humidity, the weather. Um, and uh, so far we haven't gotten that. I mean, it's been really, really hot. Right. I mean, Marisa, we're at a point, as I understand it, where Newsom is calling for firefighting help, not just from neighboring states, but across the whole country, like anybody who can come. 
Yeah. And I mean, again, this is unfortunately not the first time that's happened during the 2017 wildfire siege in the North Bay near where you are, Mina. Um, we saw firefighters come from as far as Australia. You know, California really pioneered the mutual aid system that not just California depends on, but Western states broadly um, and, and really the, the entire nation because it, it's not limited to firefighters. We see this with hurricanes and other natural disasters on the East Coast and, and in the South. Um, I think that you know, to your question to Scott, I mean, this is an unbelievable challenge for any leader. I do think Newsom, um, you know, it, it, we, we'll see. Uh, but so far, at least has been out a lot um, answering questions, talking to folks. I think, um, you know, there's been questions over how much he knew about the possibility for rolling blackouts. But it does seem like Cal ISO, the state um, regulatory agency overseeing that really made that first call. And the Californians stepped up. And so I think, um you know, we're all just trying to keep it together. And I do think that there's an interesting kind of bridge to what we heard um, Democrats really talking about in this convention, which was not as much, you know, politically about just left or right or red or blue, but this idea that we're all Americans and that we do need to sort of stand together. And I think the governor, um, through, you know, his conversations this week with the press and, and the public is, is trying to push that as well. Well, even with Newsom's diminished role, of course, Californians played a very prominent role in the convention. I mean, it did feel like it was a little different this year, Scott, in terms of, you know, California, <coughs> the spotlight on California. Yeah, well, California, of course, uh, is a solid blue state. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is from here. The vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, is from here. Uh, we have a huge congressional delegation, the largest in the country. Uh, and so it makes sense that uh, there would be a lot of Californians. But, you know, what was really uh, kind of fun last night is not just, you know, the governor being there and Secretary of State Alex Padilla, but, you know, Steph Curry and his wife Aisha with their two absolutely adorable daughters, Riley and Ryan, uh, did a video to endorse Biden. You know, there's a lot going on in California. It makes sense, uh, both from a political point of view, but also culturally. I mean, you know, the, the show was sort of anchored from out here, I believe, and uh, with you know, Hollywood stars. I mean, so, it, you know, California looms large on the political, social, and cultural horizon in California. It's not as true for Republicans, you know, because of the politics here. Uh, but it, may, it does make sense that uh, that there would be that kind of focus. And, you know, I think, it, you know, we haven't really talked about Kamala Harris yet and because so many other things are going on. But it really, you know, it is easy to sort of pass over the fact that this is such a historic nomination, her being the first woman of color, uh, you know, being Asian American, Indian American, as well as uh, black. Uh, and unlike these other uh, cases where women were on the ticket, like Sarah Palin and Geraldine Ferraro, you know, she may well be the next vice president because the polls, of course, things could change, certainly. But it's not a Hail Mary kind of a nomination. This is a she has a real solid chance, along with Joe Biden, of winning in November. Well, we'll definitely be talking more about the convention. We're coming up on a break right now, and I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. We're recapping this week's Democratic National Convention, and we want to hear from you. Did you tune in, participate? What moments stood out to you? What went well? What maybe missed the mark? The other thing was the format change. What did you think of that format? Things to learn, things to keep? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're recapping this week's Democratic National Convention, asking you, our listeners, to tell us what moments stood out to you. Do you think Biden, Harris, and the Democrats did what they needed to do to try to galvanize support and reach out effectively to progressives and even Republicans and independents? Where did things fall short? What did you feel was absent from this convention? Give us your thoughts. 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. Any 
email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Scott Schaefer, Senior Editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Marisa Lagos, Politics Correspondent for KQED. They're both co-hosts of KQED's Political Breakdown. And we're also joined now by Seema Mehta, a political reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Seema, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And so just before the break, we were starting to talk about Kamala Harris. And I just wanted to get your reaction to her speech this week, which a lot of people noted was something that they felt like was a highlight of the Democratic National Convention. I mean, one thing that I found really interesting was that we know her here, right? Because <laughs> she's a Californian and she's also, especially here in the Bay Area, been a long time um, official in the Bay Area. So what do you think of her speech and in the way that she basically introduced herself to the country? Right. I, mean, I think it's something we do take for granted because, as you said, we know her. She's been a public official here for years and years and years. Um, and while she ran for president, you know, she did drop out months before the first votes were cast. So unless you're a real political junkie, there are a lot of people in the United States who don't really know who she was. So she used her speech to really introduce herself, talk about her upbringing, talk about you know in her mother in particular, the values she instilled in her, Berkeley when she was growing up, you know, during the civil rights movement. Um, just she really, uh, I think, tried to use the speech to show the forces that shaped her, that made her decide to become a prosecutor, and that sort of explain who she is today. Um, and I think she she needed to do that because I think a lot of people in the United States like really were not that familiar with her um, as we are here in California. Well, let me play a little bit of her speech. This is Kamala Harris. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America. And Marisa Lagos, I mean, Simo was talking about how she introduced herself. The other thing that she did right there in that clip is she also brought in the historic nature of her candidacy. And I thought that was a really strong moment. Yeah, I thought she did a really uh, great job of sort of weaving together that, you know, her personal history, her her family and what her mother instilled in her and really linking it to the moment we're in and the reason that she says she went into public service. Um, you know, she talked about COVID and racism and and how there's no vaccine for racism and that, you know, we have so much work to do. And, and you know, Kamala Harris, it came up as a prosecutor. So I think even for Californians who have been watching her for the last 16 years or, or, you know, however long she's been in office here, this was a more personal speech than we have really seen her give. I talked to somebody who's worked with her since she was in the DA's office this week. And, you know, she said the fact that she mentioned her dad leaving her mom at age five, the fact that she made herself a little more vulnerable, that is not something that, you know, as somebody who was so used to being in a in a, in a courtroom or standing up as the attorney general and, and sort of um, going to the mat over legal issues and, and fights with big banks and things that she's always been very comfortable doing. And I, I think um, a lot of people would have liked to hear even more of that. But I do think it was interesting. And I think it showed you know, that she really is, to, to Seema's point, introducing herself to the other 49 states. Um, and I do think we will see that prosecutorial sort of uh, side come out as this campaign progresses. Um, but I think that she really left that to President Obama on Wednesday night and, and tried to make this something where she was connecting with the audience. Well, Stephen tweets, I had a list of what moments stood out until Biden gave his speech. It was <laughs> awesome, exceeding my expectations. He led with empathy and finished with dignity, passion, and true leadership. Uh, let me go to caller Nancy in Berkeley. Hi, Nancy. Join us. Hi. Um, okay. I was somewhat disappointed, well, mostly disappointed in the um, Democratic Convention. I mean, we heard enough about Joe Biden. We all know he's a nice guy. Um, no. But my biggest complaint was that Julian Castro, who was my first choice for president, mm. was completely ignored by the convention. I was so upset about that. And he was interviewed before the convention, and he said he was shocked that he wasn't asked to speak and that his feelings were really hurt. And, I mean, the Democrats talk about, you know, wanting the... Um, <clears throat> Latino vote, and as far as I'm concerned, they lost it at that convention. Well, um, Nancy, thanks. I, I mean, 
Scott, I'll start with you. I mean, what do you think was behind the lack of presence of Julian Castro at this convention? You know, it's a good question. Until Nancy mentioned it, I hadn't thought about it because I, I do think he was on Monday night. I mean, I turned the TV on and there he was speaking. I don't know if it was prime time or not. I think, I think it, it was pre. Was, yeah. It might have been It might have been before. Well, you know, I don't know the, the answer to that. I mean, Julian Castro dropped out pretty early. He really wasn't uh, part of the mix for very long. He did make, you know, a pretty controversial comment uh, about uh, legalizing or decriminalizing uh, illegal border crossings that, you know, Donald Trump and the Republican Party kind of latched onto as sort of an indication of how soft on, uh, you know, border crossings and security the Democrats would be. I don't know that that's why he wasn't featured more prominently. Mm. Um, you know, it, it just that's the first thing that came to mind as I started thinking about it, because there's no other reason. I mean, he was a keynote speaker years ago, I think in 2012, maybe, had as a great family story. His brother's also in Congress. Uh, his mom was a you know Democratic Party activist when he well, was he a was little boy. Well, he was HUD secretary, right? Yeah, yeah he I was mean, HUD secretary. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, Seema or uh, Marisa, thoughts on Julian Castro? Um, didn't Seema Mehta. Sorry, didn't he endorse Elizabeth Warren um, after he dropped out? He did. Yeah, yeah and, and, as, I mean, and the other people we saw who, um, you know, we saw Andrew Yang and um, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, um, Better work. Um, Mayor Pete. You know, <laughs> they all immediately after dropping out, all, almost all of them immediately after dropping out, endorsed Joe Biden, particularly Klobuchar and Buttigieg. Um, and that was right before Super Tuesday. And it was seen as sort of this this real unifying of the Democratic Party. I'd be surprised if they somehow held it against Castro, but that's like the only thing I can think of um, for why he wasn't there. But also um, it was because of the, the social distancing and because of the, type, the sort of reduced nature of the program, um, it was a really tightly packed two hours every night. So I wonder if it's some combination of the two. But I mean, I, I also didn't know. Yeah, I mean, oh, Marisa. I I would just add to that, I mean, like, to see my point. So this was the two hours as opposed to its normal five hours. And I just want to say I endorse that shortening personally <laughs> as somebody who's watching every moment. Um, also, you know, they, to the bigger point about Latinos and, and then sort of message of the convention, I think that um, I'm not sure, again, why Castro wasn't included, but we did see a lot of real diversity and, and a real move to get activists, grassroots activists. I mean, the roll call on Tuesday night was, I think, a really stunning um way of of doing this it was a it was a hard thing i think to envision especially in what little time they had to kind of make the change how to do this in a totally different virtual way and I do think that there was a lot of effort. Um, you know, we had uh, obviously a very diverse, different uh, Hollywood actresses uh, emceeing, um, including Eva Longoria. We had, um, like I said, a lot of, I think, attempts to bring in a, a diverse group. And so, you know, it, on that end, I think it's fine. I mean, I, I do think it's funny, um, this caller talking about, okay, we get it, Joe Biden is a nice guy. I mean, I do think that that's really what they were going for. They are trying to draw a contrast and what they see that contrast as is is Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are kind, decent humans who will serve all Americans, not just their base. And you saw this with Biden's speech last night, um, where he really, he never named the president by name. He talked about him, but he really wanted to talk about, you know, I think in a way of, of proving that he's up to the task of the presidency. This did not feel like a campaign speech. It felt like a presidential speech. And I think that's what they were going for. Well, let me go to Jeff in Sebastopol. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, I just wanted to comment also on Joe Biden's speech. I think um, he laid to rest any idea that he's addled and has early onset dementia. He went on for about 45 minutes, I think, to show that he's got the vigor to perform as the president of the United States. And I also think he didn't, it was not hyperbole when he was talking about um, this being a seminal moment in American history, I think we here in California in particular feel feel that. It, it feels almost apocalyptic with the fourth year of fires and uh, a pandemic as the icing on the cake. This is a serious moment in American history. I think the only thing I would prefer that he said over and over again is the words vote, vote vote because there are those 90 million people who didn't and by god we need them this time well thanks for saying that jeff i think you're somewhat echoed in this listener who writes i feel hope 
For the first time since 2017, Joe did a great job. Both he and Kamala are decent, empathetic, intelligent human beings who care about all Americans and lifting all of us up. So, yeah, let's see what your thoughts on Joe Biden's speech. I think, I mean, that's exactly right. And it was a very serious speech, which sort of marks, you know, we're in a very serious time in the country right now where you know, more than 170,000 Americans are dead because of COVID. Um, so I also think that the format, you know, not having it be a convention where you have delegates partying on the floor and wearing silly hats and all that, I think it was better to do it this way because of the serious nature of this time in this country. Um, and I also do think, uh, you know, the Republicans were sort of trying to paint Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as these sort of crazy high liberals, you know, like part of the AOC branch of the Democratic Party. They were trying to paint um, Joe Biden as this doddering old man. And I think, you know, regardless of what you think of their politics, what you saw these past couple of days, they were not show, they were not necessarily showcasing the most liberal parts of the party. AOC got, what, 60, 90 seconds? Mm-hmm. Um, it was mostly, there was probably Republicans got more time than AOC got, quite frankly. Um, and then also Joe Biden's speech. I mean, that it was one of the best speeches of his political careers. I mean, regardless of what you think of the content, it was a very solid speech. And it was um, just one small correction. It actually lasted like just under 25 minutes, yeah. which is also one of the shorter um, convention acceptance speeches, nomination acceptance speeches that we've seen recently. But that could also be partly because there was no you know, wait for applause lines, that kind of thing. It was just right. you know, Joe Biden talking to the cam- camera, talking to the American public. May have seemed like 45 yes, minutes Scott to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> like, Scott, do you think the speech did what it needed to do, or even just the convention generally in terms of bringing progressives, uniting progressives, and even, you know, uh, independents and, and disaffected Republicans into the Democratic fold? Yeah, I do. I, this was, you know, in some ways he was helped by uh, President Trump, who did set the bar pretty low. I mean, the way President Trump and some of the ads that they've been running portrayed Joe Biden, it was like you expected he'd be drooling when he walked out. And he he, he had good energy. He was uh, had, had he was very focused and present. He was, I think, struck the right tone. It sounded more like an Oval Office kind of address. And I think it's the kind of message people have been wanting from this president, President Trump, for a long time. I think it was in some ways an audition for him to show the American people what it would be like to have him in the Oval Office. He, you know, the message in part was, to quote George W. Bush, he's a uniter, not a divider. And I think uh, the notion that he is a kind, caring, decent person, saying that character is on the ballot, he's sort of a regular Joe, someone that people can relate to. Uh, the bios uh, from Jill by all those things, I think, led up to him being portrayed as the person, by all accounts, he is, which is a really good guy. And, you know, that's not usually enough. You know, nice guys finish last usually. Uh, but in this moment we're in where people are afraid and a sense that the country is kind of careening out of control, it might just be maybe not enough, but it's, it goes a long way towards solidifying, perhaps, the lead we've seen in the polls. Well, Shoshana and Westlake join us. Hi, Shoshana. Hi, how are you? Great. Go right ahead. Okay, so when the 13-year-old boy who stuttered spoke, mm-hmm. I think that was the first time that people in this country knew that Joe Biden had mm-hmm. a stutter. And it caused me to look it up on Google later that evening to understand his history around stuttering and also to understand that a lot of his missteps, I think, based on what I read, were um, during the debates were really caused by him controlling or at times not being able to control the stutter. Well, we have a clip of, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I really wish that there would be more that would come out about that so people would stop making assumptions about his being feeble or he's not alert or he doesn't have a good memory or anything like that. Well, Shoshana, thanks for saying that. And we do have a clip of the 13-year-old boy who stuttered. His name is Braden Harrington, and here it is. My name is Braden Harrington, and I'm 13 years old. And without Joe Biden, I wouldn't be talking to you today. About a few months ago, I met him in New Hampshire. He told me that we were members of the same club. We, we, stutter. It was really amazing to hear that someone like me became vice president. Marisa Lagos, I mean, do you ever remember Joe Biden being that open about his stuttering? 
at, you know, major, I yeah. Mean, yeah. So first of all, yeah, I mean, I just thought, again, like, regardless of politics, that was such a powerful moment. And I've been watching this week with my young kids. And I, it was really just so humanizing, not just for Joe Biden, but I just thought for, to you know, to think about other people. I think that we are in a moment where we're, we're also sort of in our own heads about what's going on because life is difficult right now. And it was really, I think, a powerful moment. Um, you know, Biden's been in public office for quite frankly, longer than I've been alive. And I think that he there there have been times he has spoken about it. It's certainly been written about. I think this is not something that a politician wants to really dwell on. Um, and I think that it's changed over time. I mean, look at our own governor and how open he's been about his own struggles with dyslexia and learning disabilities. I don't think that was something that that 40 years ago um, it, you could really talk about in the same way. So I think that that was clearly um, a choice by the campaign to put that out there and maybe to you know, get people like the caller to, to look a little deeper into this. Um, and, you know, I, it, it really, I think, is one of those moments that is going to kind of stick around in all of our minds for a long time. It's There was a lot packed into this week, and there'll be a lot packed into the RNC next week. But there are always these, you know, moments in time that you do recall, and I think that that's going to be one of them. Well, Robert writes, I supported Bernie Sanders and am glum at the prospect of Joe Biden as standard bearer. However, since this is a national emergency, I will not only vote for Mr. Biden, but volunteer to help him get elected. I was moved by the speech of the boy who stutters, highlighting Biden's humanity. You know, Robert's point about national emergency, I feel like that was something that was actually really highlighted by the Obamas, not just by Joe Biden. And uh, we've gotten a lot of tweets and comments from listeners. For example, Kelly, who tweets, Michelle Obama's speech stood out to me. Nice to see the Democrats united, both uh, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama. And so, uh, you know, talk about kind of the, the approach that we took, that they took, because in both cases, I felt like post-analysis really commented on how both Michelle and Obama and Barack Obama's speeches were speeches that they had never heard them give before. Uh, Sima Mehta? That's absolutely true. Um, but both, first of all, we know Michelle Obama does not like politics, and this is not what she wants to do. So you almost felt like she felt a sense of duty. Um, and with Barack Obama, I mean, since leaving office, he's you know done, at first, he's mostly done, he's mostly avoided criticizing President Trump by name. He's occasionally criticized policies that came out of the administration, um, but he hasn't made large speeches about it. It's often been in statements, um, you know, which is sort of the tradition of what you know presidents do for their, um, their the people who succeed them. However, that speech that he gave Wednesday night was a clear break from that. And both of them really took on the president in very aggressive terms, not just about policy, but about his ca capacity to do the job, his empathy, his, his willingness to learn. Um, just, it was, we've never seen either one of them speak about him that way before. And it really, they really sort of uh, grounded it in the idea that, you know, the foundation of our very democracy is at stake here. This is an entire book. We're recapping this week's Democratic National Convention with Sima Mehta, political reporter for the Los Angeles Times, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of Political Breakdown, and Scott Schaefer, senior editor for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and also host of KQED's Political Breakdown. We'll have more about the Obamas and hear more from you, our listeners, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. To the young people who led us this summer, telling us we need to be better, in so many ways, you are this country's dreams fulfilled. Earlier generations had to be persuaded that everyone has equal worth. For you, it's a given, a conviction. 
And of course, we just heard former First Lady Michelle Obama and former President Barack Obama. Those are excerpts from their speech at the Democratic National Convention. That's what we're talking about today on Forum. And again, if you have comments, questions, thoughts, call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum. And on email, it's forum at kqed.org. We're, of course, talking with Scott Schaefer of KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, Marisa Lagos, KQED's politics correspondent, and Sima Mehta, Los Angeles Times political reporter. And just a quick reaction from you, Scott Schaefer, to Barack Obama's point about basically that it is on young people. I mean, it, it really really echoes his message throughout that um, what we do now really matters. I mean, that it's basically all on the table right now. Yeah, well, he's right. And uh, obviously, younger people, and he, you know, he and Michelle have two young daughters, relatively young, young women. Uh, and they're inheriting, it's, it's that generation that's going to be inheriting the things that uh, we're now dealing with just to be at the beginning of dealing with, like climate change. And, uh, you know, I think if you look back at the messages of the week about voting, it was young people and, uh, you know, people are in and around Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia that did not vote in. 2016. It's just small numbers of people. And so I think while Joe Biden and his surrogates were focused on saying what a good guy he is, I think there also has to be a, a, a concurrent message that the Democrats are giving it the urgency of the moment and how important every vote is, especially given some of the uh, obstacles that are going to be placed potentially in the way of voting, uh, either in-person voting or voting by mail. So I think it's all part of a comprehensive message. Obviously, Michelle and Barack Obama talked about their speeches before they gave them and they you know, took different parts. I think of the message, but you know this is very personal for them. I mean, Donald Trump, from the moment he got into office, has has set about erasing Barack Obama's legacy, and that's not. I'm not saying that's why he's angry. Uh, you know, he spoke to that when he talked, but clearly that is a part of it. It's just it's unusual to have a first lady and a former president speaking about their the the, the guy that came next. But what this president has done is completely unprecedented as well, uh, and I think they just had to felt they had to say it. Marisa Lagos, I read this article by Jamil Smith in Rolling Stone where he talked about how in a year in which we may have to risk our lives to vote Trump out, meaning because of this pandemic, that Barack Obama's uh, message was something that we needed to hear in terms of how high the stakes are. Give me your reaction to it. I mean, I think clearly that's how the Obamas felt, right? Um, you know, not only has Obama himself been very careful about you know, Trump and, and what he says about the man who succeeded him. But he's been very, you know, every president has been really careful. I mean, this is sort of a tradition. And I think that it, it shows what an unprecedented moment they see this as. Um, I mean, I, I joked yesterday with Congressman Rokana, and he, he said he didn't think it was this dire. But it the, the underlying message of Obama's speech was sort of that, you know, you can have a democracy or you can have President Trump, but you can't have both. I mean, he really put a fine point on what he sees as a threat to our system. And I think that um, it, 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 it wasn't a mistake that he gave the speech in Philadelphia, you know, where the birthplace essentially of our nation. And I think that um, Michelle Obama's speech in some ways was even more surprising because she has been so cautious uh, to really try to step back and, and, and step out of the limelight. Um, and, you know, she has a podcast and stuff now, so she's been coming out a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I do think that this was uh, a very calculated moment that they must have thought a lot about. Well, let me go to Guillermo in San Leandro. Hi, Guillermo. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my phone call. I I heard the previous person who called about the Hispanic vote, and I agree with her. The representation for the convention was really love mm. on this community, you know, even for the just was a family for a family who did doing some translation about their situation where their father was deported to Mexico mm. and the mother vote for Trump. But um, despite everything, I'm still going to vote for Joe Biden. I don't think the Hispanic vote is going to go in the other direction, although the Republicans are reaching up to us now very heavily. But I don't think so we're going to go in that direction. I disagree with her about the, sh the, 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 the Democrats lost the Hispanic vote 
And if the Democrats are listening to this show, I will encourage them to the next couple of months to reach out to the Hispanic community. Mm. Mm. Well, Guillermo, thanks for that. And Eileen writes, I felt very energized by the convention, but I did think it was glaring, the lack of much attention to Asians or working class whites. Has the Democratic Party given up on these groups? Sima Mehta, your thoughts? Um, I, I don't think so, honestly. Um, in terms of working class whites, I mean, I think they actually made a point of, of showing and, and Asian Americans also, they made a point of sort of showcasing people who have really struggled during this administration, whether um, it was the auto workers in Ohio, um, in Lordstown, um, the uh, the small businesswoman who owned a restaurant in Los Angeles, who Mayor Garcetti uh, pointed out during his segment the other night. Um, so, and I think they're really actually, um, first of all, I mean, they, they, they're they're counting on minorities voting in large numbers for this ticket if they and they need minorities to vote in large number for this ticket if they want to win the white house secondly working class whites were the reason part of the reason that hillary clinton lost in 2016 because there was a number of working class whites who did vote for barack obama who did not vote for hillary clinton who either stayed home or they voted for donald trump and these are the voters in places like wisconsin and michigan and pennsylvania and ohio these are these voters are going to decide this election um so i am kind of surprised by that perception because i thought that they really did to try to reach out to working class voters, uh, white voters in particular. But Mina, um, Marisa. Yeah, I think this also, you know, raises we heard earlier from a progressive who didn't feel like the the they were spoken to enough. I mean, I think this highlights just the challenge and the balance that Democrats are really trying. I mean, what they want is to excite everybody, right? And I do think that it was a conscious choice, you know, to have John Kasich, former Republican Ohio governor, and really I think two nights in a row they highlighted a, a, the same series of Republican voters saying, you know, I voted for Trump or I sat out 2016, but I'm voting for Biden this time. Um, you know, I, I think that there is still a split within the party. There's a lot of people who supported Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren um, who would have liked to see someone more progressive on the ticket than Kamala Harris. But I think what um, the Biden campaign is trying to do here um, and, and I think we should be clear. I mean, this is still the most progressive platform we've ever seen from a Democratic Party. Um, so, you know, they are trying to kind of thread that very challenging needle and I do think that this um, was sort of more skewed towards, yeah, working class uh, white voters, suburban voters, the, the folks that they really um, did not do well with in 2016 and that a lot of people think is the reason Trump won. Well, Christina writes, the DNC was engaging. The Obamas made legendary speeches. I hope and implore Biden and Harris to be accountable to their past, highlight their evolved mindsets and speak to actionable ways they will combat racism and xenophobia. This listener writes, I'm glad they showcased John Lewis and nonviolent direct action. I don't think nonviolence is taught as it should be in schools, but the fact that this was highlighted in the convention was a hint to progressives that the Democratic Party is open to being pushed, and we must heed the call. Let me go to Janice in Petaluma. Hi, Janice. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. And pardon my mask voice. I'm working outside. <laughs> no um, problem. Stay safe. I was, I was really struck by something um, that Bernie Sanders said in talking about our democracy as a sliding scale of progressives, moderates, and conservatives, as opposed to warring factions of Democrats, Republicans, liberals, independents. So I can take comments off there. Janice, thanks. Scott Schaefer, a reaction to Janice's point. Yeah, you know, I think what we saw, I was really struck last night by that video conversation with the seven candidates who ran against Biden. That was the one Julian Castro was not part of, but Cory Booker was and Andrew Yang and Buttigieg and Warren and Sanders. Uh, and I think there is such an urgency in the party right now to show unity and to be for Biden and to set aside a lot of the differences that they have. Clearly, um, you know, Ro Khanna, when, when Marisa and I talked to him yesterday, mentioned this as well. There will be time to talk about Medicare for all uh, versus shoring up the ACA or the Green New Deal or, you know, tax policy and taxing the wealthy. But for, for now, I think they want to, they're trying to just put those things aside, but they can't put them aside forever. I mean, if, uh, especially if the Democrats win and take back the Senate, there's going to be a lot of I think louder 
disagreements than we're going to see in this campaign. If I could just say one quick thing about Latino, the Latino vote, I do think, uh, you know, that uh, Joe Biden needs to shore that up. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders did a really good job in, in Nevada and in California with the Latino community. Uh, they, they connected in ways in their communities, in their language that uh, really, uh, really get, drew a lot of Latinos to him. And I think that when you look at polling, there's a surprising number of uh, Latinos who say they're going to vote for Trump. And when I say high, I mean, between 20 and 25, but given the policies on immigration and other things, you'd, you'd think maybe it would be lower. So I do think Biden has, and, and Kamala Harris have work to do there. Well, uh, we are getting a lot of comments on the format of the DNC's <laughs> approach this year. Let me just read a few for you here. Tina tweets, love the DNC approach. I hope we never do it the old way again. The videos made it really intimate, allowed us to listen more deeply and really get a sense of the speaker, loved all the personal stories, and the closing was fun. Patricia writes, I hope future conventions follow this efficient model without all the cheering balloons, over-the-top entertainment, and wasted time. It was also such a pleasant relief to see smiles from those in the White House, a warmth that has been sadly lacking for four years. Also have a couple comments here about Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Tim <laughs> writes, I know it's an ongoing joke that our Vice President Pence is secretly gay, but if I'm interpreting it correctly, the joke between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Andrew Yang about Mike Pence by pronouncing his name like Ponce, which is British slang for pervert, disturbed me a little and felt uh, like going too far. Adrian tweets something quite the opposite. Adrian tweets, Julia Louis-Dreyfus was a brilliant choice who just eviscerated Trump with her hilarious quips, disarming Trump as she referred to herself as a proud, nasty woman. All right, who wants to jump in on format here? <laughs> I don't know about Marisa the French. It. Yeah, I, I mean, I took that as a joke about the Tucker Carlson clip on Fox News where he's refusing <laughs> to, to, to pronounce Kamala Harris's name correctly. I that I, I don't know. Maybe there was a, a, another level to that, but I would be surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though I do think that went did fall kind of flat, um, but... That's just me. But yes, in terms of just the format, too, it seems like this is something that the Democrats could learn from, Sima Mehta. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was kind of remarkable what they were able to pull together in a relatively short amount of time. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of the week, there was sort of some trepidation, like, is this going to be interesting? How are they going to do it? At times, it seemed like a telethon. But um, I thought that they did an incredible job in terms of the technology. I mean, we've all been on Zoom work calls and you know, somebody forgot to mute and somebody has the camera aimed at their chin. And, you know, largely there, there was a couple little missteps here and there where speakers started too early or, or started too late. But largely it was the technology was really good. It was very smooth, you know, really nice presentation. And beyond that, I mean, I was I, in talking to delegates this week and also talking to Democratic voters who are not delegates. They say that they sometimes the, that the conventions can feel a little insiderish, which is true. Um, you know, if you go there, it is, you know, it's a bunch, it's a small, it's thousands of people, but it's a small number of Americans, you know, relatively who know each other, who you know, are going to these like, you know, lush parties, you know, the booze is flowing, the free food is out up there. And, um, and it is not like most voters don't get to experience that. What we saw, you know, the last four nights was in their words, in the delegates words and the voters words, I spoke to like very intimate and they felt like they did a really good job of showing the broad diversity of the Democratic Party in terms of race, in terms of religion, in terms of um, sexual identity, and um, and, also, and the stories, the, the videos that they built, the packages about biography um, in terms of Joe Biden's life, Jill Biden's role in it. Um, they, the voters that I spoke with were just really moved by these, and they, they felt like they learned something. So I think um, even when we are allowed to gather again um, in, and not have to socially distance, I think that they're going to learn from this. I think conventions aren't going to look the same ever again. And also the one other thing, if I can point out, the roll call of the states. Normally that is like an hour and a half mm -hmm. that is super boring where you have like the delegates on the floor like dancing and doing the Macarena and like everyone's like, you know, dutifully reporting their numbers. This was really cool, like where they had a scene from every state and, you know, territory. And, you know, for California, it was Cabrillo Beach and San Pedro. And you had the shores of Puerto Rico and Guam and you had the St. Louis Arch and the Las Vegas Strip. And maybe it's just because we haven't been able to travel in a while. I was just really excited to see all these different places across the country. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Well, Dana and Santa Rosa, thanks for waiting. No problem. So I just kind of want to really give a shout out to the DNC for being able to put together such an immense virtual event. I will say on the format, what I really appreciated was it stripped away a lot of the uh, the kind of ugly side of the pageantry, which, you know, delegates dancing on the floor and all of that is is fun, but especially when you're sitting through so much it, in a sense especially over the last decade our country's been going through so much it can it can be a little not great at times and so 
I just want to say, especially now, I feel the tone that that sent by stripping away so much of that extra stuff really helped let it approach the uh, solemn kind of mood that 2020 has really taken. I mean, I'm in Santa Rosa right now and, you know, blue yeah. sky is pretty covered by smoke. Yes. So, <laughs> um, Well, Dana, thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate it. Let me see if I can get Andrew from Simi Valley in here. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. And so you're I on just want to right say, ahead. yeah, so as a, like a young progressive voter, I have a lot of problems with the Democratic Party not usually taking ideological stances anymore or taking like plat- uh, making or starting like an actual platform. You know, it seems to me that they're sort of being opportunist in the sort of sense that they're taking a look at the sort of cultural milieu of people who consider themselves liberals or progressive, and they're sort of just adapting to that and making that their platform. Mm. I'm not saying we should go back to the days where every party has a very explicit ideology and a manifesto. Well, Andrew, thanks for saying that. I mean, there were there had been criticisms that the DNC or the convention had been short on policy. Do you think that Bert, uh, Joe Biden did enough uh, in terms of laying out the Dems platform in his speech? And I'll ask you, Scott. Yeah, I think he did. I mean, I don't think voters vote on the platform, you know, or the details of his health care or environmental plan. I think they want to, you know, they want to have a sense of who this person is. What's his character like? What will it be like to have him uh, or her in our living rooms, you know, for the next four years? Uh, But, you know, the Democratic Party is a very diverse party right now. And it's going to be it is difficult to uh, strike that balance in a way that, uh, you know, both convinces voters and gets voters excited without leaving people on one end or the other of that political spectrum behind. Uh, So it's tricky. It's a tricky uh, match. But I do think that the virtual nature of the convention was the right tone for this moment. Um, Well, yeah. This listener writes, as a Bernie supporter, I was hesitant to listen to, quote, Sleepy Joe. But guess what? Joe's speech was very good, and I was even more motivated to vote for him. Hope others feel the same. I feel like I should play just one more clip from Joe Biden's speech. Let's hear it now. This is a life-changing election. This will determine what America is going to look like for a long, long time. Character is on the ballot. Compassion is on the ballot. Decency, science, democracy, they're all on the ballot. Who we are as a nation, what we stand for, and most importantly, who we want to be, that's all on the ballot. And the choice could not be more clear. Well, Laura writes, how many Democratic voters do you think will refuse to vote for Biden because he's not their ideal candidate? I think that's all the question. That's the question we're all wondering right now. Scott Schaefer, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. And Marisa Lagos, appreciate you, of course, being on as well. Always a pleasure, Mina. KQED's co-hosts of Political Breakdown and Seema Mehta, political reporter for The Los Angeles Times. Thank you. Thank you. Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. And our intern is Jamison Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Curden. Ariana Prail and Susan Britton produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.